going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel, the 12th chapter, as we continue our study in the parables, working our way through these lessons from Luke in just a few select parables until Stephen returns. In his book entitled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, Ron Sider, I appreciate some of the illustrative material, not always in agreement with his theology, but he had a great couple of pages here where he laid a challenge on my heart, a challenge under the title, Poverty at $50,000 a Year. Page 32, he writes, a few years ago, Newsweek did a story entitled, The Middle Class Poor, calmly reporting that U.S. citizens, and he had three cases here in that article in Newsweek, Earning, one was earning $38,200 a year, another individual earned $46,300, and even one who earned $63,700 a year felt they were living at the very edge of poverty. One resident in New York City grumbled that, quote, you just cannot live in this city on $100,000 a year, close quote. In the fall of 1995, a U.S. congressman announced that his salary of $163,000 a year put him in the lower middle class. Sider goes on to write these words. One of the most astounding things about the affluent minority, us, is that we honestly think we have barely enough to survive in modest comfort. Constant seductive advertising helps to create this destructive delusion. Advertisers regularly deceive us into thinking that we genuinely need one luxury after another. We are convinced today that we are in competition with our neighbors. So we buy another dress, another sports jacket, or another sports car, and thereby force up the standard of living. He goes on to say, costly, manipulative advertising bombards us at every turn. And its primary purpose is not to inform, but it is to create desire. Luxurious houses in better homes and gardens make our perfectly adequate houses shrink, by comparison, into dilapidated tiny cottages in need of immediate renovation. The advertisements for the new fall fashions make our almost new dresses and our suits from previous years look shabby and old-fashioned. We in the United States spend more money on advertising than on all our public institutions of higher education. The average American child in ages 2 through 17 watches 2.8 hours of television per day. The average adult watches more than four hours a day, which means 30,769 commercials a year. This means that over a period of 65 years, the average person will watch 2 million commercials, which will devour about two years of your life. He says, tragically, a lot of advertising is used to convince us that Jesus was wrong about the abundance of possessions. He quotes Dom Kamara, Camaro writes, I used to think when I was a child that Christ might have been exaggerating when he warned about the dangers of wealth. Today I know better. I know how very hard it is to be rich and still keep the milk of human kindness. Money has a dangerous way of putting scales on one's eyes, a dangerous way of freezing people's hands, their lips, their eyes, and ultimately their hearts. Some good quotes. Cider did well in quoting them. Money, it's always in the news. Possessions are always on our minds. Voices, as we just heard, are always in our ears, and they tell us things. I hope you will listen to this parable that we're going to introduce that deals with the place of material possessions in my life. If you had an opportunity, you may have picked up the USA Today newspaper. If you picked up the USA Today, one of the headlines on Thursday morning's paper would have read, Executives 
at bailout firms face steep cuts. The financial czar under President Obama announced that in the major firms, the top 25 executives of places such as Citigroup, Bank America, General Motors, Chrysler, etc., will have their pay cut at least 50%, some as much as 90%. was interesting, the sub-commentary on that said many of them still will have about or make over a million dollars a year. You'd like to have your pay cut 90% and still make a million a year, wouldn't you? All right. If you picked up the newspaper a little bit earlier that day, you would have read in another column of Money Magazine, oil hits $82 a barrel. The dollar plunges. Did you notice as you went by gas stations, price of gasoline is going up, and it's expected to go up for the first time they've announced we probably do not have the store houses like we once had. Area paper, triangle joblessness creeps up. We are now at 8.9%, the region's unemployment rate. Those things bother us when we think about the possessions and what's going on and how it might affect me. And if I'm driving the right cars, getting the right mileage. No need to fear or worry. We just read in Newsweek magazine the cover which announced the recession is over. All right. By the way, you ought to always read the subtitles. It says there, good luck surviving the recovery. All right. And they meant to then try to encourage us, but the reality is we're being affected, folks, in big ways. In our lifestyles, all of us are feeling a little bit cramped and crowded and distressed. Voices are telling us it's tough to make a living. Advertisers are telling us in the meanwhile that you ought to have something better, more, and enjoy the things that you have earned and obtained and have. I look at some of the things we have and wonder... Why can't I have that instead or better? For instance, I want you to notice, if you look at an image of a a picture that was taken here in our parking lot, if you were to drive this van, you would look at that and go, I don't know. I think I'd rather drive. By the way, that van was taken, that picture of a van in our parking lot. (laughs) It's the church's van. All right. (laughs) I look at that, or I go and pick my car up this week just up the road, and I'm having noticed, Lucy and I are noticing as we drive it. She drives it more than I do, and as we drive that van, the steering has just been giving us fits. Not only is it hard to steer, but it makes a horrible noise. You might hear it today in the parking lot. I'm going on the third rack and pinion. That's the steering system. It needs a power steering pump. And the mechanic says, it'll be 1000 for that, 500 for that. We also have a front leaking oil seal. The van's not that old, all right? But I'm thinking, hmm, I think it's time for one that looks better than that. And so I think I want that one, all right? But actually my heart says, uh-uh, I don't want to drive a minivan. My wife calls them. I'm not going to tell you what she calls <laughs> We drive it, but she refers to some of those things as what I drive as geezer mobiles. So I really want a different vehicle. That. Uh, Okay. That is a Bentley. There are not a lot of Bentleys in our parking lot. A couple of years back, we were in Manhattan. We had gone up there for a weekend and uh, walked past a Bentley dealership. I'd never sat in a Bentley. I'd never sat in a car that starts at $400,000. I wanted to sit in one. I wanted to sit in one with an engine that has 550 horsepower. I wanted to feel. I wanted to smell the car. So I walked into the showroom. And when we walked in, I happened to be wearing denim jeans, sweatshirt, We were just going for a casual walk around Manhattan. And when I walked into the showroom, I greeted 
The salesman, he just looked up, looked right back down. (laughs) He didn't offer me the keys to get in the car either, and so I can't have it. But it isn't just cars. Those kind of cars we can make jest about, but there are homes. We can live in smaller homes. When we drive out of our driveway from a smaller home like this and we drive by a larger home, we wonder, why can't I live in something a little different, a little larger? And so we drive by homes like that and say, that was good, but this would be better. As Sider wrote, some of our homes feel like cottages and need renovations and they need to be. And because they're small, we look at that and we go, hmm, wonder who lives there. Wonder what life is like for them. And then we see other homes and we wonder, I know what life is like for them. I would like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to be talking about the parable of the rich fool. As we look at this parable, our parable actually begins in verse 16. We are putting it in context with verse 13. As you're turning there, I want to read something. A writer said this, the expression, money talks, deserves more credence than we give it. We are prone to paint the image of spirituality and colors of deep Bible knowledge, lengthy times of prayer or prominence in the Lord's work. This writer goes on to say, certainly a vital spiritual life is related to fellowship with the Lord in His Word and prayer and service to the Lord in His work. But our love for God may be proven by something that is a major part of everyone's life. And that is the use of our possessions, the use of our money. How we use our possessions demonstrates the reality of our love for God. The use of our possessions shows us up for what we really are. And that writer's correct. Money is a test of character. Jesus will make that teaching lesson a principle for us to learn. He is on his way to Jerusalem. There are four teaching episodes alone on that trek up to Jerusalem in which, in this journey with his disciples, he'll teach on money. We are in a series of several parables until Stephen returns. We won't preach many of the parables. We're just filling in during these weeks. But we wanted to learn lessons from Luke. As Luke wrote to a friend, Theophilus, discipling him along in the things that Christ taught. And we read that in Luke. And as we turn to the book of Acts and we would see, as he writes and continues on to Theophilus, how the early church operated The years went by, then Luke recorded that, and it became encoded as our gospel. But the thing that's important in the gospel of Luke are these numerous parables. And among the parables are the numerous parables that deal with possessions and deal with stewardship. Obviously, then, Christ wants us to learn something important. And Luke writes how Jesus taught his believers how to have a different view of material things. And with that in mind, there's a lesson for you and for me today, and that is we need to have a right perspective regarding those things that have been given to us by God. And I want to begin in verse 13, but even before I get there, I want to go back to verse 1 of Luke chapter 12. As we look in this passage of Scripture, put yourself now in the scene on this occasion. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping upon one another, it is a huge crowd. The crowd is larger than this. We are comfortably seated on chairs. There were so many up to Jesus, they actually walked on each other as they sat there. There wasn't room to place your feet to walk between the people. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So, and then he goes on and he talks about that. And he teaches then in these verses that we have numbered 2 through 12 about living life different. And he's going to talk about the rough road that his disciples will have to travel in this hostile world that you know all about. And it's more than the price of gas is going up. It's a tough world. But there is always pressure. 
You hear it over 31,000 times a year across our televisions, in our radios, across the newsprint, on our iPhones. Even there, the advertising can get to us, telling us to conform to the attitudes all around us. There are lots of voices calling for our attention. Somewhere in there, we lose his voice. But someone in the crowd, verse 13, hollers out, someone in the crowd said to him, shouts out from back there over by that door, they shout out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. He's interrupted by a questioner. Jesus is addressed by the questioner as teacher or rabbi. And by the way, the rabbis were the ones learned in the Old Testament scriptures, and they would have known well, the scriptures, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, talks about how that if a father dies and there's family inheritance, the oldest son is the trustee, and he will now divide out the inheritance among the family, among the brothers. And if there's three brothers, they will divide the property into fourths, each one receiving a share with the oldest, the double portion. And this man now hollers out and says, tell my brother to divide that portion which should come to me. His older brother obviously is not giving him what he should be getting, and we don't know the reason why. Alfred Plummer writes in his commentary, the man is not really asking Jesus, though, to arbitrate. By the way, according to Psalm 72, 1 through 2, when the Messiah comes, he will be the decider, the judge, the arbitrator of affairs here on earth during that time. In the meantime, in the Old Testament, they were using then these scribes and these teachers to do the arbitration. They then acted as judges. And so with that in mind, because they had rejected him as, or were rejecting him many, the leaders as Messiah, Jesus will not accept that arbitration at this point. But Plummer writes, the man is not really asking Jesus to arbitrate, but to decide against the other brother. Jesus will not honor such a one-sided request. In other words, the man doesn't want a decision. He wants a pronouncement. I want mine. It's all about me. Remember that? from last week. But Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he says, the problem isn't you're not getting what is yours. You don't need me to settle a dispute between you and your brother. There wouldn't be a problem between you and your brother if your heart was right. You need to have your heart put in order. The real problem is a greedy heart. So he says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You may receive a large inheritance. Would you still be satisfied? Be on guard against every form of pleonexia is the Greek word. Here translated greed, one other time by Luke translated greed. And that's the only times Luke uses the word. Paul uses it 15 different times. When he translates pleonecho, Pleon, which means more. Echo means to have, to want, to desire. It's called, I want more. Pleon, echo. By the way, in Colossians 3, verse 5, and Ephesians 5, 5, it talks about the sins of the flesh, and one of those being covetousness. Here's what Paul says, and putting away covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. It's the one sin called idolatry. When I drive, see the home. When I see that and I go, I want more. In essence, we're saying to God, I'm not satisfied with you. 
I'm fixated on that. The setting is appropriate. Why is he dealing with this? Why does he teach that? Because he's been dealing with the matter. Back in verse 1, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In order to appreciate what's going to happen now, you and I need to understand something about that day in which Jesus is teaching. You see, the Pharisees set a great deal of store by material possessions. They judged a man, and they thought, and they made judgments about a person based upon what he wore, the kind of car he drove, or the house he lived in, or the job he had. See, they put a lot of store by material possessions. According to Deuteronomy 28, God had promised material blessings for obedience. Material blessings then in time became viewed as a sign of God's good pleasure in the person who possessed them. Obviously you have because God likes you and is blessing you. Therefore, the pursuit of material possessions became the highest goal. Do you follow that syllogism? A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. And that's how the Pharisees reasoned. In their minds then, seeking the highest goal of having, wanting, gaining, in order that by having possessions, you could give public evidence of being approved by God. So the prevailing Jewish attitude could be expressed with these words, When the Lord loveth, he maketh rich. If God's blessing was to be sought, riches ought to be pursued. Thus the Pharisees, in a sense the ultimate Jewish show-offs, were lovers of money. And they judged another man's life and standing and spirituality and relation before God by the abundance of the things he possessed. We grasp that and have that. With that as a backdrop, you think of the irony then of all of this when you consider Jesus Christ. No wonder they mocked him. He possessed nothing according to their righteous standards. Scripture says he did not even have a pillow on which to place his head, meaning he owned virtually what? Nothing. Therefore, he was impoverished before God. But it comes down to this then, the question here, what's wrong with desiring material possessions? Jesus then offers a warning against the excessive focus on that. And the warning then is to be on guard against greed or covetousness. And that, with that in mind, then he's going to give us this lesson that we need to have a right perspective regarding those things which God has given us. What we're talking about is stewardship, managing that which God has brought into our lives. I want you to notice as we look then into this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 16, and I want you to see that he's first of all going to offer a warning, a warning to those with abundant possessions. And as you look at this then, a warning to those with abundant possessions, Jesus is going to speak by means of a parable. Let me read the parable. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Ah, then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's stop there for a moment. He's going to give a warning to those with abundant possessions. In this parable, notice back in verse 16 for just a moment before we take this parable apart a little bit further. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man. This man is a property owner. He already is wealthy. He has much. The farmer is rich. He did not become rich by this year's harvest. He only is going to add to his riches. He did not need the added wealth to sustain himself. And by the way, As Jesus begins to tell this story, the people living in that agrarian, that farm-type society, would be envied and might even regard this man as they first start to hear this parable as being specially blessed by God. 
And Jesus, as he starts to unfold this story, never even offers a clause, never says a statement that this man was involved in avarice or cheating or any immorality or any wrongdoing in getting this increased. Or his wealth never came by corrupt means. He came by it honestly, okay? In other words, he earned it. One thing we learn in Jesus' parables, and parables were told quite a bit by the teachers in his day, but one of the things that makes Jesus' parables always interesting and unique is the element of surprise. And here, the surprise is that the man has a perfectly natural dilemma. This man's wealth fell into his lap. He came by it honestly. And yet he fails to be a good steward. Verse 17, and he began to reason to himself, saying, I don't have any place to store the crops, so I'm going to build newer and bigger. And he feels satisfied, and here comes the surprise. But God said to him, verse 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Surprise, he died. Okay. Warning to those then with abundant possessions, you're going to notice about this man And what we're focusing on is the fact that there are two characteristics of this covetous person who already has possessions. The first of those is this. He never sees. He never saw. This man never saw beyond himself. Oftentimes, someone who is guilty of pleon echo, covetousness, never sees beyond himself. Ten times in verses 17, 18, and 19, we have the expressions, I, mine, my. What do we mean he never saw beyond himself? Notice, first of all, he is self-centered. He got his wealth by honest means, his own labors, but his solution to the problem of increased wealth shows that he has no concern, no concern for anybody other than himself. More than that, if you recall, we were told something. Remember how a lawyer came to Jesus and asked him, what do I have to do to be righteous enough to get and merit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, well, what says the law? What are the commandments? And he quotes then Deuteronomy 6, 5, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. And then he goes on, thy soul, thy might, etc. And... The second is like the first. He quotes then Leviticus 19 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the law spells out how you are to love your neighbor. But in this passage, Jesus is going directly at the heart of that. This man in this parable had the perfect opportunity to fulfill the law by distributing the excess to the needy. But he never gave it a thought. It never enters his mind. It is nowhere there. It is a vacuum. His heart is void of even going there. The fruit of the land and everything is described as my fruit, my barn, my goods, my soul. Leads Daryl Bach to write these words on his commentary. Such language suggests exclusive self-interest, a focus that is often the natural product of earned wealth. It is mine, my talents, my degree, my job. I earned it, my time. For just a moment, would you go back with me to Deuteronomy 8? Deuteronomy 8, please. God says there is a problem when you come into the land. The problem's not with the land. The problem's not going to be in the houses that you're going to dwell in, by the way, which you did not build. It's not going to be that you'll be drinking from the wells which you did not dig, nor that you will be eating from the fruit of the vine which you did not plant. See, I'm going to bring all those things to you. I'm going to take you into the land, and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to fight your battles, and I'm going to enable you to live in the land. I'm going to give it to you as my covenant people. That's what he said to Israel. The problem is, is after a while when you enjoy it and you start to take it for granted, you begin to what? Forget the Lord your God. And so in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17... 
says this. And actually, if you go back to verse 14, after a while, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt when you were slaves, when you had nothing. Verse 17. And what might happen to you then is you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God for that degree and that ability and that knowledge. It is he who is giving you power with your time and your talents to make wealth. It's all from him. Amen? And you and I are stewards. Whether it be the athletic ability, whether it be the entrepreneurship, whether it be the... It's God's. What do I do with it? What do I do? This man was experiencing some self-centeredness. Led him to also then experience some self-indulgency. Not only was he self-centered... But a person who never sees beyond himself also is, as we said, self-indulgent. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods, laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He is showing by his attitude that his first love centers around himself, his comfort, and his enjoyment. And he put personal satisfaction primary. The result? He's being challenged and Charged and used as an illustration then that he is morally mismanaging his wealth, giving no thought to the needs or, of others or even thinking of God. Noland writes in his commentary, with such a wealth of resources, his responsibilities had just begun. When God brings those things into our life and he gives us money and he gives us those things, our responsibilities really just begin. To whom much is given, say it aloud, much is required. The man mistakenly, Nolan writes, thinks he is only responsible for himself and his own. The comfort, the heart behind this justification for his thinking is the product then of greed, end of quote. So he is placing his comfort, his satisfaction then above his righteousness before God. Folks, remember what we said, the expression? And let me point it out. Money and material possessions are not evil. And God, through Old Testament history, has abundantly blessed some of God's greatest heroes for you and me were some of the wealthiest on earth. Solomon, David, Abraham, Job, and the list could go on. New Testament, Barnabas, Zacchaeus, Matthew, we can make a list of these. There's nothing wrong with the money and the possessions. Paul would write that. He would write in 1 Timothy 6 these words. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. I translate that. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Okay, verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money, the greed, the pleon echo, the covetousness is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. We are told to think differently. Therefore, Jesus is exposing the folly that he never sees beyond himself. But notice something else in verses 20 and 21. He never sees beyond this world. This man never saw beyond this world. Back to Luke 12. He says in verse, as we begin reading, but God said to him, you fool. By the way, there's great irony here. We do not think of a man like this. We do not think of a landowner. We do not think of an entrepreneur. We do not think of this business executive as being foolish. We regard them as wise. We think of these people who can actually 
tiptoe through the dollar bills, as it were, who have that much wealth. We go to seminars offered by Bill Gates. We listen to those men. We want to hear. Just let the, the, we will take the scraps that fall from the table of your advice. Teach us, O great one, on how to earn like that. We regard these people as wise. He made this money through upright means. He was making careful provisions to keep his riches. In other words, he is investment planning. He was planning for himself and his own, not squandering. He's amply providing for his household, and yet God calls him a fool. How does that work? Well, I believe there's two reasons, and the first is found in verse 20, and that is, God said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. As you see that, he lived only for this life. This man was sovereign over his land. It's my house. It's my barn. It's my car. I own this home. I live. I have a townhome here in Cary. I live on Jameson Woods Lane, and it's mine. And should the Lord tarry, I'm going to live there many, many years. I have to. I have a many, many years mortgage, okay? (laughs) But I live in this home. It's mine. And the Lord, upside the head, Dave, you live in it maybe 20 years. You may sell it then. But whose is it a thousand years from now? Who owns the land? Who owns it? It all comes back to him. I may be sovereign over my car, my car. I may be sovereign over my home. I own the title and hold the title deed, holding the title to my car. But God's holding the title to my life. He's the sovereign over me. And so this heartbeat that It has a few more, and the next one is a gift from God. Any ability to think and to understand, to read and to study, to speak and preach or do it, that's all from Him. Any money that's in that wallet or that checking account or that savings account, the little that's there, that's that's His. It all comes from Him. Do we understand? I'm a steward. I manage his. But he lived only for this life. See, Jesus uses a word here. You, in the Greek word here, fool, our phone, the Old Testament word, Nabal. In the Old Testament, a fool is one who acts either without God or acts, well, it says this in Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 53, 1, the fool says in his heart, God does not exist. Job, in Job 31, we read these words beginning in verse 24 through 28. Listen, in Job 31, 24, if I placed my confidence in gold or called fine gold my trust, if I have rejoiced because my wealth is great or because my own hand has acquired so much, this would be a crime deserving punishment for I would have denied God above. It's a pretty powerful verse, isn't it, or verses. God gave us all we have, and we are obligated to God to use that for his glory. He lived only for this life. He failed to prepare for eternal life in verse 20. And now who will own what you have prepared, you fool? By his title, he lived without God being primary, but then the question is asked, Who will get what you've prepared for yourself? It's a rhetorical question, and it obviously then has in mind the answer, not the one who's preparing it for himself. Folks, listen. Material things are designed for this life, not the life to come. However, 1 Timothy 6, Paul would write in verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And when we earn those monies, that tithe evidences that. That offering beyond evidences that. And when you give them, it's more than to help turn on the lights, heat the building, cool the building, pave the parking lot. Support the missions, do those things. As we give, we give to God. And we give to God's program. We call it sometimes the the kingdom. But really what it is is God's program for this day isn't the kingdom. It's what? It's through his church. The beauty of that, it just seems so simple. But it says in 1 Timothy 6, instruct them to be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You can't take it with you, but you can what? Send it on ahead. And one day we'll hear then what? Well done thou, good and faithful servant, steward. The parable does not condemn planning or wealth per se. It condemns storing up treasure for oneself and not for God. That's the problem. So the issue of the parable is not wealth, but how it is directed. And as stewards then, we are to invest in eternal things that way. And I'm running out of time, so let me just give you what Jesus goes on to say. And let me say this. He's going to now teach, and he's going to use this this setting about this man who raises this question, but ultimately it was an opportunity, a teaching moment in which Jesus through a parable can teach those who have what you ought to do with what you got and how you ought to send it on and use it for the glory of God. But then something else. As we talk about that, he talks about those who may not have as much In other words, he instructs those, not everybody is in the haves. There are those with few possessions. As a matter of fact, many times most of us feel like this. And so he instructs us through principles. His own disciples is who he's going to speak to now. He won't call us fools. Praise God. Okay? What he's going to do, though, is come right into our face and say, I want to tell you something. As a child of God, you ought to think differently. You ought to avoid anxious thought. And by the way, you may not have much, and oftentimes people who don't have as much as others do are the most covetous. If I only had, if I only won, I know that other Christians would frown on me winning the lottery, shouldn't be gambling, but Lord... I won't tithe. I'll actually give you 50%. That still leaves quite a bit left over. You know. And we think silly games like that. We could ration. We would like to have, if I just had more money, if I just had more, a little bit more would make this situation much easier. And that just works and works and works on our lives and our hearts. And by the way, Balancing this all is tough stuff. I was joking about that van. You and I live there. Am I throwing, as a steward, good money after bad? This home, this apartment, is it better steward to own than rent? We wrestle with, is this job, though it'll take more hours, and I'll earn more better than that? And we struggle with those things all the time. Going to that college for that degree in the long run, is it better than this community college at this point? And we wrestle with those things. And we worry about those things. And so Jesus says to us, verse 22 through 30, he begins to teach us that we need to avoid anxious thought, avoid worry. Let me read the passage and for sake of time. He's going to tell us avoid worrying. First of all, 
because worrying is needless. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry. Be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or put on your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Sometimes the the least of the creatures that you can watch out there, they don't sow, they don't reap, and yet they have no storeroom or barns, and God feeds them. How much more valuable are the birds? This is a contrast. And he is saying, God knows you worry. And it's not going to change things in the worrying. God is aware Verse 25, and which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? Sometimes that's translated as single cubit in the old English, which means a foot and a half. I've worried about that, okay? And so he goes on to say about that, if he, then you cannot even do a very little thing. Why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, consider the anemone, how they grow. Neither do they toil nor spin, and but in their beautiful purple, not even Solomon in his Tyrian purple was clothed like one of these. Worrying is needless. It is useless. It is faithless. Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you who, the contrast is or the idea, who have eternal life, You men of little faith, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, or do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world, the unbelievers, seek. But your Father knows that you have need of these things. We are to be different from the way the world thinks about possessions, or the world worries about those things, or the world sets those as their goal. See, we ought to do our best and then trust God to direct in our lives as sovereign and in his providence. And then he takes us to this. We are to avoid anxious thought, but more than that, we are to seek God's will. And with this we close verse 31. But seek his kingdom, his rulership and reign and prominence in your life, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Set your mind on pleasing your heavenly Father. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You will rule and reign and be in prominence one day. But do not be afraid, little flock. In the meantime, and by the way, you and I don't think about a whole lot of those future kingdom things in the millennium. We're not troubled about that. I'm troubled about the here and now. I'm occupied with that. And he says then, my little children, my little flock. It's an Old Testament expression. How God looked out for the flock, the little sheep, the lambs. The Lord is my shepherd was an idiomatic expression used throughout the Old Testament. And it's like the idea, well, here it is. Uh, Lucy and I have five grandchildren, ages three through seven. Two of them live in Florida, two little ladies, seven, five. Three of them live in Minnesota. This week we had the joy of speaking to all five of them on the phone. What a hoot. Okay. I mean, and I miss them so badly. And when I'm around, I mean, it's just, and to hear the things that are important to them this week, that's a hoot. Okay. I mean, what is important to a seven-year-old, or what's a crisis to a seven but what's important? To me, what is just so neat is just when I'm around them and hold them and they, Papa, let me tell you, hey, Papa, you know, and they talk. And my five-year-old this week, she, could, she, just, she just had, hey, Papa, hey, Papa, you know what? And then she just keeps telling me stuff. But to watch them when they're sleeping, man, there's just nothing like it. I forgot what it was like with my kids, but I see my grandkids. And they're sitting there and their mothers, are, shh, they're sleeping. It's like, I gotta kiss them. I just gotta kiss them, okay? I gotta just, just reach out and just, they just sleep and they're just, there's not a worry in their mind. And it's like, they're not thinking about way out there. And they don't worry about it. Mom and dad are going to take care of it. Papa, he's going to take care of it. He'll just take care of all things. I fall, I get a boo-boo, Papa, kiss it, and it's like, and then put a band-aid on it, and it's like, that's great. Nana, what can you do for my boo-boo? Okay. Nana will kiss it, and it's like, that just makes it fine. What kind of faith is that? Some 40, some maybe 50 years ago, I used to have that kind of care about life. 
Then I grew up. Now, that doesn't say you always have to think like a child, but you know what? Maybe I need to go back and have that kind of spiritual. God kissed the boo-boo idea. Me, I'm all perplexed and worried and plotting and planning. Set your mind on pleasing the Heavenly Father and spend your life laying up eternal treasures. Sell your possessions, give to the charity, make yourself money belts, verse 33, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there is where your heart will be. Or as F.W. Donker writes, if one's bank deposit is made in the first national bank of heaven, then the real choices of a man's life will be governed by that perspective. Folks, you and I ought to realize all we have is from God, and when we give, we ought to be faithful in giving back to Him, and we ought to be willing to say, Lord, I'm investing in the future, and not be torn, worried, perplexed over these things that we so much are, we need to trust God with our possessions and be a proper steward of that which is His. Someone has said money can buy a bed but not rest, food but not satisfaction, luxury but not contentment, stocks but not security, a house but not a home, a church but not a Savior. But what not money cannot buy, God offers as a free gift. Amen? We work to have, work to get, work to want, and I want more. We think that in order to have a car, I've got to work a lot. And I'm going to be working at this for a couple of years to pay for this car. To buy this home, I'm going to be working 20 or 30 years. More work. Eternity in heaven, that's the ultimate. And I have to work to have that. Folks, praise God. The wages of sin leads to death, but what? The gift of God is eternal life. You don't have to work for heaven. He gives that to you. He gives it to you as a gift. Have you received it? You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You receive it. Unmerited favor. As a child of God, if you're troubled and perplexed, take that to the Lord. If you need help or counseling or the money worries are just pulling me down, get help. Get God's advice. Trust the Lord in these matters. Watch what he can do in our life. For those of you who are serving the Lord and wanting to be the best steward, continue to do so and send those treasures on ahead to the glory of God. Thank you, Father, for the time in the Word. May you use the Word and challenge and change us, conform us more to the image of Christ. Help us to place God first. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added. We pray in Jesus' name.